Hello, church. My name is Mike Valdez. I'm one of the prayer team leaders here at Sanctuary, and I'm so excited and honored to share this message with you today. You you may not be aware of this, but we actually have a prayer team who meets multiple times a week on Zoom to pray for our church community and listen to see how God might be guiding us as a community and what he might be speaking to us. And so much of what we've been sensing together and independently in our own prayer times from God in the past few weeks and months is so in line with the message of Advent. Uh, Before I get started, I just want to pray for us today. So King Jesus, you who came thousands of years ago in the flesh to earth, you whose spirit is with us today and who in some mysterious way are still coming to make the world new, Lord, would you just speak to our hearts? Would you be present with us right where we are in our living rooms or listening in some kind of audio podcast or in the car, whatever we're doing, Lord, would you meet with us and demonstrate your love to us today? In your awesome name, amen. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. It's the season where we sort of model the posture of waiting that God's people had before Jesus came to earth in the flesh. By sort of taking on that posture of waiting ourselves for a few weeks as we approach Christmas. It's a time when we're honest about the darkness and difficulties that are part of the reality of living in our world and simultaneously seek to tap deeper into what true hope looks like. And traditionally, on the second Sunday, we examine the idea of peace. Now, I think peace is always a nice sentiment, especially around Christmas time, but I think the gap between the idealized sentiment and our felt experience or reality is is maybe wider this year for many of us than in years past. There's obviously the pandemic and all of the complications that come with that. There's been a lot of political turmoil in many ways, And this is all on top of the many stresses any of us feels in our regular day-to-day lives. I think it'd be easy for each of us to kind of fill in the blank of what's robbing us of peace. One of the Bible words often translated into English as peace is the Hebrew word shalom. If you look at the depth of the meaning of the word in the original language, it refers to when something is whole or complete. When nothing's missing, nothing's broken. When something is made of many parts, but All the parts are working properly and are in harmony with each other. One of the most commonly referenced verses in the Bible about peace is in the book of Philippians, uh, which is a letter written by the early church leader, Paul, to one of the church communities that he had helped start. And he says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this sounds great. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I definitely really struggle with anxiety. It may actually be, for me personally, one of the biggest things I struggle with as a human, this kind of like low-grade, ongoing fear and worry. So the idea that I could take that anxiety to God, give him my request of what I want to see changed in my life, and he would exchange that anxiety, that worry, for peace, that's exactly what I want. (laughs) And I imagine that's true for a lot of you during this season. And so now when I read this verse, here's how I envision things should go. Either God will fix my external circumstances, right? He'll cover the gaps, make everything the way it's supposed to be. So nothing's missing, nothing's broken, right? That's what that shalom is supposed to mean, or at least if he won't do that, he'll give me some sort of internal feeling of peace, some sort of like saint-like immunity to the negative emotions caused by the stresses of the world. 
And sometimes this happens. Sometimes God actually does exactly that. But more often than not, um, it's not the case. So if, if this verse is true, when, when, I, when I pray that prayer, when I bring that petition, and I don't feel that sense of peace right off the bat, when I don't see my circumstances changed, how is this supposed to work? What is the dynamic that God is teaching us about here? And for that, I want to actually go to another section of scripture. There's this book of song lyrics in the Bible called the Psalms. You might be familiar or heard one of the most famous ones, Psalm 23. It was written by David, a king of ancient Israel and a prolific poet, songwriter, musician who led God's people in songs of praise and also grew up before he was royalty as a shepherd. In Psalm 23, he reflects on his experience of his relationship with God. He writes this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. With all of this shepherding imagery, David is painting a picture of the way that he has learned to trust God in all things. With this opening line, the Lord is my shepherd. David is recognizing the gap between him and God. You know, sheep are not the most intelligent creatures. And David, in his experience as a shepherd, recognizing the difference between him and his sheep, he's actually flipping that to recognize some of the difference in wisdom, in competence, in power uh, between himself and God. And he's setting himself up, setting up the rest of the song with this posture of humility and dependence, recognizing that God God's role in his life is to guide, to lead and shepherd him, and that God has all of what he needs within himself to actually make us able to depend on him. He goes to the next line, I shall not be in want. David knows from experience that he's going to be provided for, just like he has led his sheep, made sure they've had the food and the water they need when they need it. He knows that God has led him to be able to have all the provisions he needs when he does. And this means that he does not have to worry about whether that will happen because he's learned that his God is trustworthy. There's a confidence that he has in this. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. These are like idyllic images of peace. They're not frantic. They're not hurried. They're calm and quiet. He restores my soul. If you're like me, that's exactly what you want, <laughs> exactly, especially around Christmas time, which ironically can feel like the most frenzied time of the year. He's offering this alternative vision of a life, a life specifically spent with God. But here's where the song kind of takes a different turn from maybe these picturesque, I don't know, Instagrammable perfect vacation version of peace. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. What's interesting here is that the assumed life with God is not perfect. 
I think so often when I, when I think of that verse about bringing my petition to, to God, that he is going to, I don't know, answer my prayer as I'm asking it. That he's going to give me the outcome I'm asking for. That if I have these external circumstances that are, I don't know, ruining my peace, that God is just going to correct them so that they won't be bad anymore. But that's not the experience David is sharing. He's not saying that God, his shepherd, has like, I don't know, gone around the valley or teleported him through or or fast-forwarded that part of his life. No, he's saying instead, even though I walk through the valley, I won't fear because God is with me. I think so often our ask or our expectation of God is that he will remove us from our circumstances, that he'll get us out of our circumstances. But instead, God gets in our circumstances with us. And this brings us back to the Advent story. Jesus, the the baby who was born that we recognize at Christmas, the whole point of all of this, right? He lived this out. The land of Israel at the time, the land that Jesus was born in, and at the time he was born, it was living in oppression under the brutal Roman Empire. If you tuned into the broadcast last week, you heard Pastor Andrew talk about this a bit. For hundreds of years, God's people had been holding on to hope of these promises that God had given them that he would send a rescuer. One of these promises uh, recorded in scripture says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is like an epic prophecy of the future. And there are some other promises that contextualize this a little bit by explaining that this anticipated rescuer would actually be like King David. Now, King David was sort of this picturesque, quintessential king of Israel. He was a mighty warrior. He worshiped God. He led Israel into a time of peace and power and prosperity. So given the context of that and the context of where Israel was at the time of Jesus under oppression, it made sense that they interpreted this promise to mean that the rescuer would overthrow Rome and essentially restore Israel to its glory days, that that's how God would bring peace. But instead of ending their difficult circumstance, Jesus got in it with them. Specifically, rather than overthrowing the Roman government by military force, he allows himself to be betrayed, tortured, and murdered. God leaves heaven. He leaves paradise to come allow himself to experience some of the worst of humanity. We learn from scripture that this was actually all part of a plan, a divine plan, to bring us to an even greater peace, a shalom on a scale that his followers had not imagined. He knew, Jesus knew that the most foundational parts that were out of alignment, that had to come back together in all the brokenness to see true shalom, was for us to be made right with him. That these were the fundamental pieces that were at odds more than anything else. In his years of being a traveling teacher and preacher, before he died, Jesus taught his followers, these sort of apprentices, that I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We might talk in our modern culture in abstract ways about the divine or some kind of morality or consciousness behind it all. 
different religions and spiritualities talk about how to engage that in different ways. But Jesus actually makes this very specific and very bold claim that he was the full and perfect manifestation of divinity as a human, that he was God in the flesh, which is mind-boggling for lots of reasons. <laughs> I wish I had a whole sermon to talk about that. But he's, he's making this claim that ultimately our life comes from him, comes from God. The more connected with him we are, the more freely that life flows. While a disconnected branch, well, it loses that source of life and it, it dies. We see throughout scripture, and honestly throughout history and in our own lives, if we stop to look, that the more we deviate from God's wisdom, his guidance, his instruction on how to live, that the more brokenness and death we introduce into the system. Each of us, by deviating from the path God has laid out, by just, I don't know, plainly put, like, doing things that are wrong, we've become like a branch that is trying to live separated from the vine. For real shalom to happen, for the pieces to come back together, we need that fundamental separation to somehow be resolved. But our inability to be perfect, to, be, to resolve ourselves, to the inability of the branch to get back up to the vine, this fact keeps us as imperfect people from, from being reunited to a perfect God. But then, this is where Jesus enters the picture, because by dying simultaneously as fully God, and yet somehow also mysteriously as a man, a human, he was able to live a morally perfect life, totally pure, and, and yet also stood in our place as a human. So he effectively, kind of like almost in a legal sense, took our place like in court, if you can imagine, standing under trial for all of our misdeeds, all of the punishment that justice demands of us living in a moral world, right, was on him instead of on us. Jesus put himself in a position, taking upon himself the weight of consequence, the judgment of every unjust, evil thing committed by all of humanity throughout history and yet to come. And by wiping that slate clean, by making forgiveness possible, by taking that judgment in our place, we now have the opportunity to be reconciled back to God. For us to be healed from every bad thing that we've ever done or has been done against us so that we can actually become whole again. Finding the ultimate peace, the ultimate shalom by being reunited in a restored relationship with our creator God. To be grafted back into the vine. It's an incredible sacrifice that God makes for us. Rather than writing us off as a lost cause, he enters our darkness and brokenness and depravity and takes it all on himself because he just loves us that stinking much. He'd rather leave heaven to be with us than live in a heaven without us. Another promise we see later in scripture is that God is actually continuing from this fundamental restoration to make all things new. That once we're aligned with the love and will of God, all sorts of other things can return to peace as well. And as we go through that process of being restored back to God, he invites us to participate in the process of the restoration of everything else. His promises to give us not only peace, but also power to be the carriers of his love to the world around us and to bring that life-giving shalom wherever we go. So, that's awesome. But for those of you who are very practically minded, you're maybe thinking like, okay, Mike, great. That's awesome. It's beautiful, truly. But what do I do? 
how do I respond to this? We're, it's okay, we're about to get practical. Um, for those of you who are like the note-taking during sermon types, like this is gonna be your moment. What are some of the ways we can be intentional to pursue God's presence, this power, his peace in our lives? I wanna offer just three very simple examples. The first is rest. Rest. <laughs> rest is putting our trust in God to the test. Because if I trust that God will take care of me, I don't need to be constantly striving to try to control the outcomes of my future. I can stop when I need to stop. And what's cool is that this actually works both ways. Sometimes I rest out of that trust in God, but sometimes I can use resting as a way to develop my trust in God. If I'm having trouble trusting God, I can, doing it, like trusting him internally, I can use this external practice. I can set aside some time as a sacrifice, an act of faith, and say, you know, God, I'm, tr I'm trying to trust you with this. Will you take this little bit? And the more we rest, the more we will see God actually deliver on those promises. One really practical way to do this is to Sabbath. If you're new to the way of Jesus, this is an instruction we see in scripture to take one day off per week and not work, but to take that time to rest, replenish, and specifically to reconnect with God. If taking one whole day off a week sounds absolutely insane to you, just try one hour a week. Or if you have to, to start just 10 minutes. Each week, push that out a little longer and see how God begins to restore your soul. The second one, slow down. There is, of course, the reality that we're not resting all the time. There's still work to be done. Business that God wants us to be about. Important things. But if we only take a little time each week to trust God, and then the rest of our week still run around frantically, as if God's not present, if he's not providing for us, how much are we actually carrying that posture of trust with us? If you'll indulge me in a little wordplay, I'd like to suggest that part of why we struggle to find peace is because we're living at the wrong pace. So often we find ourselves hurried and frenzied far beyond what is like a human speed of life. There's so much research and thinking out there about how our pace of life in 21st century America is absolutely destroying us, about our overstimulated social media, multi-screen lives. It's breaking our brains, ruining our attention spans, ravaging our souls. If we choose to slow down, allow ourselves to breathe, be present to focus on the one thing that's in front of us, disentangle ourselves from overcommitment so that we're actually building in margin, building in times to rest on the regular, if we clear out the clutter, we're actually making a room for the peace of God to come and dwell in our hearts. And the third one, pray. I know it sounds so overly simple, but I wonder how often we know that, but then don't actually do it. When you find yourself worried, freaked out, stressed out, wound up, is your response to take that to God? This is like the main thrust of that verse from Philippians that a key part of our process of connecting with God's peace is actually specifically presenting our request to God. Again, he may not respond to that request as we expect or as we want, but bringing the thing before him positions us in the recognition that we need and want him present with us and actually engages us with his presence. I recently tried this sort of funny practice to wrap my mind around this. I encourage you to try this with me from wherever you're watching. I imagined each thing that was stressing me out on a particular day, like symbolized as an object. Maybe a financial concern is like a bill or a difficulty deciding what to do about visiting family for Christmas is like an ornament. 
And I imagined all of the worries of that situation living inside that object. Um, it's a little silly, I know, but it's okay. That's part of it. I imagined myself handing that object up to God and his hand reaching down and taking it from me. I was sort of in this image, like trusting that I could give it to him and that he would take care of it. And I repeated this for as many things as I could think of that were stressing me out. And the next day when some of the situations stressed me out again, I just did it again. And I kept in that moment using that is a, is a, like a symbolic act to choose to believe that God is who he says he is, that he is going to take care of me. And then I, I planned my day, I, I planned my weekend, I lived it out accordingly. I chose to let go of that and not be worried. So these are just three very, very basic examples. There's so many different practices that we can use to engage God. And, that, and if you're interested in diving in deeper, you can actually just go to our website, sanctuaryri.org advent. If you scroll all the way down, there's like a little button that says learn more where you can find resources for some of these practices. The focus of all of these, to bring it back to Advent, is to recognize that in a world as broken as ours, lacking peace, the way to get back to peace ultimately is not even in these practices, but in the reality of God's presence with us. I'll close with one of the last promises that the Israelites received about this rescuer, this rescuer Jesus, that one of his names would actually be Emmanuel, which means God with us. This pandemic may actually provide a unique opportunity for us to take a pause from the frenzy of life and the frenzy even of the Christmas season to refocus on our dependence on God, our need for his life and the unique peace that only he can miraculously provide us. Love to pray for you before we go. King Jesus, I thank you that you have loved us so much that you were willing to not abandon us, but be present with us in our suffering. That even now, even in this moment, as our world aches and groans in need, unsure of what to do, doing our best, but still coming up empty in so many ways, God, would your presence be our peace? Even when we don't have the answers, even when we don't know what the future holds, would your response of being in it with us be the thing that fosters peace in our souls and for our world. Our service is not over. We actually are just moving over to Zoom. Uh, if you're on our online platform, you can just click the communion in Zoom button where we're actually gonna finish our service by taking communion together, recognizing the unity that we have being reconciled to God through the sacrifice he's made. And while you're there, if you're still struggling with a lot of this peace stuff, maybe you've done some of these practices that they're not seeming to take, or maybe you're new to the whole way of Jesus at all, we have a prayer team who would love to pray with you. You'll be put into a separate private Zoom room where you can just request prayer, or even just you don't have anything specific, but you would love to just be blessed for the day, blessed for the season. We would love to pray for you. So thanks so much for tuning in today, and peace be with you.